Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Tonight is a very strange sutra. It's a, it's kind of a non, it's not a sutra. It's a sutra that's not a sutra. Um, tonight we're going to be talking, I'm going to be talking about Zen Buddhism um, as a school, as an idea, as a concept. Um, I mean, boy, if there's not a type of Buddhism that has a lot of information about it, a lot of different people's takes on what it is, what it isn't, all of that. Both internally, within the world of Zen Buddhism, there's debate about what is Zen, what isn't Zen. There's debate about whether Zen is even Buddhism. Like some people think it's like a whole other thing. I'm not in that camp, but. Um, so I'm going to start um, with what Zen presents itself as. Zen presents itself as a special transmission of the Dharma without words or letters or without reliance on words or letters, without using words or letters. A lot of different interpretations of this Chinese sentiment or this statement that Zen is a special transmission of the Dharma without using words or letters. What that is sort of code for is that Zen Buddhism is a special transmission of the Dharma that doesn't use sutras. That's what the code of without relying on words and letters means is without relying on sutras. So it's kind of a funny text for us to do tonight. Whoa. So where the sutra that we will talk about, however, is the platform sutra of the sixth patriarch, who is Huinang. This is sometimes just called the sutra of Huinang. It's sometimes just called the platform sutra. It's sometimes called the sutra of the sixth patriarch. So any combination of those, for example, this one does it as the Sutra of Huinang. This one, however, does it as the Platform Sutra of the Sixth Patriarch. What you should know is that this sutra that I'm going to talk about tonight, that I'm going to sort of describe or explain, read, I'll read a little from, this is sort of the foundational sutra or text for a lot of types of Buddhism, the, the Platform Sutra. Um, but more than the textual basis of Zen, I kind of want to talk about a few different uh, just sort of aspects of this practice that make it unique, that make it not the Yogacara Buddhism that we've talked about in the past, or make it not the Theravada traditions that we've talked about in the past. So what are the things that make Zen unique? And so in order to sort of get across what Zen is all about, I, I've written a story of sorts. So for the first half hour, however long this takes, I'm going to tell you guys a story of Zen that fits in very well with the story that Zen tells about itself. But this is sort of my own little funny concoction of a lot of different ideas. To really appreciate sort of the origins of Zen and what it is, we need to start with actually not our patriarch, not our hero, this monk named Hui Nung, we need to start with the so-called seventh patriarch, so not the sixth, but the seventh patriarch, this Chinese Buddhist monk named Shen Hui, who died in 758. 
A lot of people don't know about Shen Hui. You, anybody who's studied Zen Buddhism probably has never heard of this guy. He's an obscure figure in this history or story of Zen, but a fascinating one nonetheless. What you should know about Buddhism in the Tang Dynasty, in the year, um, you know, 740, 730, 740, when Shen Hui was a, a young man trying to get his brand of Buddhism going. Um, and so what was happening in the Tang Dynasty at this time in China was that the Chinese were fascinated by what they perceived as foreign religions like Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, all of them. And in the year, shoo, easily from the year 700, 710, 720, 730, all the way leading up to this guy Shen Hui, the, the emperor, the, the empire of the Tang, were really interested in all these foreign religions and were supporting them, giving them money. And kind of what you had to do is go before a council of sorts. You know, they say you had to go before the emperor, but it doesn't seem like people were literally going before the emperor. They were going for a council of sorts representing the emperor. And basically you would plead your case. You would say our type of Buddhism or our god, our Zoroastrian god or... You know, Asura Mazda, our Zoroastrian god, he's the best. And you would try to explain to the emperor why your god or your sutra or your Bible or your god, whatever it is, you, you would try to argue why it was the best and why you should get support to get a little monastery going, a little operation. <laughs> Shen Hui was one of those monks who had been called before the council. And he, so you can imagine this guy, you know, being called before the council you know, state your name, Shen Hui, um, you know, in a school. And, and so he says something to the effect of uh, uh, Southern School, Southern Doctrine, Supreme Mahayana, Great Perfection of Wisdom. Uh, what was that? Uh, Southern School, Sudden Enlightenment. What, what was that? And so this is where Shen says, oh, well, I need to tell you who my master was. And so Shen Hui, before the board, describing his type of Buddhism, says, in order for me to describe my type of Buddhism to you, I need to tell you a story. And so the story that Shen Hui tells is about his master, Hui Neng. And this is indeed, FYI, the first chapter of this Platform Sutra of the Sixth Patriarch is an autobiographical section that I'm about to narrativize for you rather than reading it. Hui Neng was born in Guangdong, the south of China. Born, uh, this is Hui Neng that we're talking about now. Hui Neng, young kid, born in the south of China in Guangdong. Uh, father was some sort of low-level official that died when Hui Neng was very young, and so his mother and him kind of struggled to get through life. Story is that Hui Nang used to chop and sell firewood at the market and where they'd bring in extra money for the family. And he was illiterate, not educated. This is sort of part of the story of Hui Nang. The archetype of him is that he's illiterate, uneducated, just trying to get by. And one day he's at the market selling his wood and he hears somebody reciting the Vajra Chedika Sutra, the Vajra Pranyaparamita Sutra otherwise known as the Diamond Sutra. He hears somebody reciting just a few lines of this Diamond Sutra and supposedly became instantly enlightened, fully 
he got he got it. He was like, oh yeah, that's for me. And he runs up to the guy and with his mind on fire, and he's like, what is that? What is that that you're you're saying? I don't even know what that is. And he's like, oh, that's the Diamond Sutra. And he's like, the Diamond Sutra. Wow, like tell me more. And he's like, well, I am from this mountain monastery, East Mountain Monastery, where there is a great master named Hongren, and Hongren teaches the Diamond Sutra. And Hui Nung's like, I gotta go meet this Hongren. I gotta go up the mountain. And so he goes home, gives his mom the money from the firewood, and he says, Mom, I'm sorry, but I gotta go. And so he leaves, kind of archetypal Buddhist story of leaving the family, and going off, and he goes up to the East Mountain Monastery, knocks at the door, they let him in, and he goes right up to the abbot, this guy Hong Ren. And he goes right to Hong Ren, and Hong Ren's like, so what are you doing here? And Hui Nung's like, I'm here to be a Buddha. That's what you do here, right? You, you turn people into Buddhas. I'm here to be a Buddha. And now, oh, and by the way, East Mountain Monastery was in the north of China, closer to the capital. And Hui Nung, of course, was again from Guangdong, from down south. And so Hong Ren looks at this kid, you know, he's just got his, you know, you know really, you know, civilian clothes on, looking pretty ragged, speaking with a southern accent. And Hong Ren looks at him and he says, you're from, you're from the south. How could anything good come from the south? And keep in mind that China, like most of the world, has some weird north-south divide where the south is bad and poor and the north is good and educated. So this bias between the north and the south comes across and Hong runs, you're from the south, nothing good ever comes from the south. How could you become a Buddha? To which Hui Nung instantly replies, although you may be from the north and I may be from the south, as far as I understand the, the Buddha's teachings, our Buddha natures are the same. Oh, Hung Ren's like, oh, okay. And so he sends Hui Nung off to the kitchen to pound rice. That's, and there is a, an idea here that Hung Ren noticed the acumen, noticed the intelligence of Hui Nung. So he sends him off to the kitchen and Hong Ren is now getting ready to retire, to pass on the abbotship of East Mountain Monastery, to pass on the patriarchship to a student. And it so happened that in China at this time, Buddhism had become very institutionalized and hierarchical. If you know your, your long history here, when we're talking about the mid-700s, Buddhism came to China basically around the year zero. So Buddhism had been in China for 700 years and become very institutionalized and hierarchical as Chinese society is. And so when Hong Ren was ready to retire, it was sort of assumed among the monastery that the second in line was this guy Shen Xu, the senior teacher. He was the senior teacher of the abbot, taught all the monks. And so Hong Ren, he comes out, leads this big audience, and he says, everybody, I'm getting ready to retire, and I need to find my, the, who to pass this on to. And so I want you all to go back to your rooms, back to your cells, and I want you to write a mind verse, a gatha, a poem, that will demonstrate to me your level of enlightenment, and whoever has the best mind poem gets to be the next patriarch. Now, what happened was is that all of the students went back, and they're like, are you going to write a poem? 
And they're like, I'm not going to write a poem. Shen Shu, he's their senior teacher. If, if A, if I write a poem, I'm going to offend Shen Shu, so I'm definitely not writing a poem, but <laughs> I'm not going to win. I can't win, so I'm not going to write anything. Meanwhile, our senior teacher, Shen Shu, he's sitting in his room sweating bullets because he's like, oh, my God, all the other students, they're not going to write any poems. He knows this. He knows he's supposed to be the man to get the patriarchship, but he can't come up with a poem, and he's like, oh, going to do? And then he, th- he comes up with this idea, brilliant idea. He's like, I know. I'll sneak out tonight and I'll write my poem out. And then tomorrow morning, when Hong Ren comes out, I'll see his reaction. And if he likes it, I'll say, that was me. And if he doesn't <laughs> like it, you know, I can just pretend I didn't write it. He's like, that's my, that's my good plan. So he goes out in the middle of the night and there's this, um, like kind of what you would imagine as like a Japanese screen, right? like a three-panel Japanese-style screen, and it's slated to be painted uh, with images from the Lankavatara Sutra, actually. This is of minor significance, this long story. But before it was painted, it was just bare, and so Shenshu gets out his brush and he writes a poem. And he says, The mind is like a mirror, and the body like the Bodhi tree. Every day we need to wipe the mirror so that no dust can settle on its surface. Sounds a lot better than Chinese. <laughs> but a simple poem. The mind is like a mirror, the body is like the Bodhi tree. Every day we polish the mirror to let no dust alight. So he writes it out, and then he goes back. Next day, everybody goes around, and they're like, oh my god, whose poem, whose poem? Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. And Hong Ren comes out, and he reads it, and he goes, this is a good poem, but it's not a fully enlightened poem. And at that moment, our, Hong Ren com- or our, our Shen Shu comes out and he says, I'm sorry, Master. I wrote the poem. I wrote, it's my poem. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I already knew you wrote the poem. <laughs> and he's like, and it's a good poem. And all you students, memorize this poem. It's good, but it's not fully enlightened. And so all the, all the student monks disperse. And one of the student monks is memorizing the poem. And he memorizes it. And then he's walking through the halls of the monastery. And he walks by the kitchen where our... Young Hui Nung is sitting there pounding the rice. And this student monk goes walking by and he's like, the mind is a mirror, bright, the body is a booty tree, every day we have to bear it and let no dust alight. So he's reciting the poem and Hui Nung starts laughing out loud. And he's like, whose poem is that? Like, you know, and he's like, oh, that's our headmaster, Shen Shu, that's his poem, the Hung Ren, he told us we should study it. And he's like, that poem's like, whatever. And he's like, what is, what is this all about? And he explains to him the contest and all about this. And he's like, well, I could write a poem better than that. And he's like, show me where this is all going on. And so the student monks take Hui Nung out to the screen. Hui Nung's illiterate. And so he has the young monk, student monk read him the words out loud. And again, he thinks that's totally unenlightened. And so he's, write this down for me. Because again, Hui Nung can't write. So he's like, write this down for me. And so below that poem, the student monk writes for Hui Nung, there is no mirror, there is no Bodhi tree. If all is void, where can dust settle? That's Hui Nung's poem. The next day, everybody gathers around, including Hung Ren, and he goes, who wrote this? And everybody's like, the new guy, the new guy wrote it. And he says, oh, that's very good. Come see me tonight. Third watch of the night. It's like a secret thing. And so in the third watch of the night, Hui Nang goes and sees Hong Ren in his secret chamber. And Hong Ren proceeds to tell Hui Nang a story. 
And Hong Ren's story is about a monk named Wei Ke. Wei Ke, oh by the way, let me write this down real quick. Seven, this is our sixth patriarch. This is the fifth patriarch. This is actually the second patriarch. Hui Ke. So Hui Ke, he has a checkered past. <laughs> Hui Ke was uh, uh, basically, he had a bad upbringing and he turned into a robber thief type of person. And so he was wandering through the hills of China a long time ago. This is the story, by the way, that Hong Ren's telling Hui Nung, that our second patriarch, Hui Ke, was one day wandering around the woods and he was with a group of other robbers looking for someone to rob. And they came across a man meditating in the woods. And that's, that man's <coughs> name was Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma was not a Chinese monk. He actually came from the south of India, sailed by boat to China. Sometime maybe in the 5th century, we're not sure. Bodhidharma brought with him a practice that was rather new to China. Even though Bodhidharma being maybe the mid-400s is coming to China 400 years after Buddhism had already gotten there, Bodhidharma brought with him a practice that focused on dhyana. That type of meditation Right? So that old school Theravadan type of calming dhyana meditation, which in Chinese, by the way, they use this character plus another character, and this is in Chinese pronounced xiana, which is their attempt to pronounce dhyana, xiana. And by the way, this Chinese character, so the Chinese, once they transliterate a foreign term, jiana, jiana, jiana. Once they get it, it's like, that's how we're going to say jiana, is jiana. Once we get that in Chinese, we can dispense with that. Because <coughs> we know in Chinese that this character means jiana, absorption, that type of calming meditation. And this character is pronounced zen. So this Bodhidharma coming from the south of India brought with him a dhyana practice, a calming meditation practice, classic old school Theravadan style meditation to the south of China and then up to the north of China to this region. He eventually goes to a famous mountain called Mount Shaolin, which is where our Hui Ke encounters him meditating. And he's sitting there in his meditation posture, deep in meditation. And this group of robbers come, including Hui Ke, and they're like, yo, check this guy out, right? And so they come up and they you know, start looking for stuff. He doesn't have anything. But they're fascinated this, that this guy is sitting there and they're like rooting through him and he doesn't seem to care or notice. Again, he's practicing dhyana. But then they really, they're like, wow, this guy's pretty funny. So then they start messing with him a little bit and he's like, boing. <laughs> you know, they push him over, boing. Boom, he's solid. They're like, wow. And so now they really start laying into the guy. You know, they're picking up sticks and they're basically seeing if they can get him to come out of this trance he's in. And he seems immovable. 
Then at a certain point, a couple of the guys get it in their ideas and they light him on fire. And he just sits there, untouched by it. Whoa! The two other robbers freak out and they leave, but Huey Cus sits there amazed. And so he's like, at this point, like, whoa, who is this guy? So he douses the guy in flames and says, yo, I want to study with you. What are you doing? What is this thing you're doing? Let me, let me, you know, teach me. And, he's, and so he comes out of his meditation, sees this guy, Huey Cus, sitting before him. And he says, well, I'll only teach, you know, teach you if you bring me your, um, it's, you know, the word in English would be sin, but it's in Buddhism, sin's not sin. You know, in Buddhism, they talk about errors and missing the mark and these things. Like, just sort of, you're trying to walk the path and you've got off track a little bit. And now you got to get back on track. But if you get off track, that's a, a sin in Buddhism. Not morally corrupt from the core. Just, you missed it a little bit. You got to get back on the path, right? And so, Bodhidharma says to Hui Ka, yeah, I'll teach you, but you got to you got to bring me your sin. You got to bring me where you got off the path. Oh, no. He's like, huh. So he goes away and he's thinking and he's like, you know, in China, the punishment for robbing, cut off your hand, cut off your arm. And so he thinks that's what the guy meant. And so out of a shine of dedication that he's that willing to learn from this guy, Hui Ke takes his arm and chops off his own arm and takes it and offers it to Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma, of course, looks down, shaking his head, this poor fool. And he says, okay, now bring me your ignorance. And Hui Ko walks back. He's like, does this guy want me to chop off my head? Like, what does he mean? I don't... He comes back to Bodhidharma. He's like, I I don't know what you mean. I'm sorry. And at that, Bodhidharma says, excellent. I'll take you as my student. Now, there's a lot of... I could be here all night telling you stories about Bodhidharma. Famous story is, is that he was basically meditating for so long, he started to get a little tired, and so he cut off his eyelids to stay awake. Planted his eyelids in the ground, and the first tea plant in China grew out of it. And he plucked the leaves and made tea to stay awake. A beautiful story about how tea is a good aid to staying awake, right? But the story is he cut off his own eyelids. The story is the guy cut off his own arm. Uh, they say um, Bodhidharma practiced a style of dhyana that actually he would meditate with his nose two inches from a wall. And they say that there's a wall that you can go where he on Mount Shaolin where he meditated so intensely you can see little holes where his eyes like burned it into the wall. He was so intense. And you'll see images of Bodhidharma and he always has these giant wild eyes. And there's a lot going on in that. He was kind of a madman, a kind of uh, John the Baptist, you know, madman in the wilderness style type person. But his big eyes is, is in, at least in Chinese iconography, to indicate his foreignness. This dude was from India. He was not Chinese. He was a foreigner. Um, you may, um, in Japantown or in Japan, see these red dolls that with these big white eyes. It's called a Daruma doll. The way you say Bodhidharma, essentially, in Japanese is Daruma. That's a Bodhidharma doll. And, bo- and you may have also had, as a kid, one of those funny balloon clowns that when you punch it, it goes like that. Actually, Bodhidharma is the original 
uh, clown that you can't knock over. And they originally had Bodhidharma toys that did that. And it was a sign of his immovable dhyana. Not a lot of folks know that about that. Funny thing. Um, again, I could be here all day telling you these stories about Bodhidharma. But in particular, what's of note is that, again, Bodhidharma, who was known for this really remote mountain monastery that was often robbed. All these monasteries were subject to uh, being looted, basically. I mean, they had a lot of gold, a lot of uh, resources and materials. And the monks were kind of known to be pacifists. He could kind of walk right in and walk right out with the stuff. Story is, is that Bodhidharma wanted to put a stop to that, and so he invents Kung Fu to defend the monastery. And there is still, to this day, a long tradition of Shaolin-style Kung Fu that is Buddhist-based, based on the tradition, or at least the tradition of Bodhidharma. Scholarly consensus is that Bodhidharma didn't have anything to do with Kung Fu. That's all much, much later. But the, the legend of Bodhidharma remains strong in the Shaolin tradition, as well as the tradition of Koi And this is noted that in Shaolin Kung Fu, they greet each other like this, <laughs> with one hand to represent that dedication of Hui Ke to that. He was that dedicated to the practice. And so after Hui Ke comes to be Bodhidharma's disciple and begins learning the dhyana training, late one night, Bodhidharma invites Hui Ke into his chamber to tell him a story. And in that story, Bodhidharma relates that he is actually the 28th patriarch of an Indian tradition. It goes back to India that he was part of, that he is bringing to China. Hueka, of course, is riveted by this information. And so Bodhidharma relates to Hueka that long ago, 28 generations back at the time of the Buddha, the Buddha was on Mount Rajgriha. And at that time, it was alerted that he was getting ready to pass into nirvana, final nirvana, and that he was getting ready to give one of his last sermons. Whoa, word went out all around. And all of the monks and the arhats and the bodhisattvas and the Garudas and the Maharagas and all of them came to attend what they thought might be the Buddha's last sermon. And they all gathered around and the Buddha's sitting up there deep in meditation as everybody's quieting down. And finally, once everybody's nice and quiet, the Buddha, he opens his eyes, looks around, and then from somewhere, he... And there was one monk in the audience that smiled. His name was Kishapya. And they say that that moment when the Buddha slightly twisted the flowers in his fingers and Kishapya slightly smiled, that there was a special transmission of the Dharma, direct mind-to-mind transmission of the true Dharma I, without reliance on words and letters, just And so then Kashyapya 
late one night, having received the direct mind-to-mind transmission from the Buddha, when Kashyapya was getting ready to pass away, he brought Ananda into his chamber late one night, told him the story of the Buddha twisting the flower, and gave Ananda the direct mind-to-mind transmission, and gave him the Buddha's begging bowl and robe as signs of transmitting the direct Dharma. Hui, uh, uh, the, the Buddha gave the direct, uh, direct Dharma to Kishapya, Kishapya to Ananda, Ananda to another monk, to another monk, to another monk, up through to 28 when Bodhidharma got the direct mind-to-mind transmission, which that night he gave to Hui Ke, making him the second patriarch. Hui Ke then became uh, a, the master or the guru of uh, Dao Xin. Dao Xin is the fourth patriarch, uh, or sorry, the third patriarch, and then Dao Xin gave it to Song Tao, might have gotten those reversed. Song Tao gave the direct mind to mind transition to Hong Ren, and then that night, Hong Ren gave the direct mind to mind transmission to our hero, Wei Nung, giving him the same bowl and the same robe, making him the seventh patriarch. And then he says to him, yo, people are not going to be happy that I gave you the patriarchship because it was supposed to go to Shen Shu. That's the way things go. But you are enlightened. <laughs> Shen Shu, you are enlightened. And so you better get out of here because people are not going to like it. <laughs> and so that night, Hui Nang with the bowl and the robe, he jets it out of there and basically begins his um, you know, the, his teaching career as the sixth patriarch. However, if we go back very quickly to the mind verse battle in which the senior teacher Shen Shu said that the mind is like a mirror, the body is the Bodhi tree, every day we need to clean it so that no dust settles on it. That poem is a description of a, a classic Buddhist program of meditation, long periods for weeks and months and years and lifetimes in order to get rid of the kleshas, the defilements of the mind, the colorings of the mind, until the mind is finally still like a mirror. That was the gradual school's teaching about this Zen or Dhyana meditation. Hui Nang is noted for implementing the sudden school of Zen enlightenment that says this does not take lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. And why? Because since all is void, there is no mirror, there is no Bodhi tree, and therefore where could the dust settle? Where could these kleshas be? Where could these defilements be? That there is no mind to be defiled, that is... The, what allows for the sudden awakening. So says Hui Nung. And Hui Nung is noted for uh, many, many, many things. But one of them in particular is, is that he smashes the Buddha's bowl, rips up the robe, and uh, there's a picture here on the cover here that's a famous one. He takes a copy of the Diamond Sutra and... No more, you know, the, this symbolic robe, the words and letters. No, it's just me, Hui Nung. What do you want to know? That's the 
kind of the beginning of a Zen tradition in that regard. And of course, Hui Nang becomes the teacher of Shen Hui, who is standing before the audience of the empire, pleading his case that you see, you see that because I am the seventh patriarch, I have received the direct mind-to-mind transmission from the Buddha. I got it from Hui Nang, who got it from Hong Wen, who got it from Dao Xin, who got it from Sun Cao, who got it from Hui Ku, who got it from Bodhidharma, who got it all the way back to the Buddha. And sure enough, this idea of sudden enlightenment versus long, long enlightenment, sudden enlightenment sounded a lot better, right? Um, a lot of things sounded good. And so as a matter of fact, Shen Hui does become sort of recognized as seventh patriarch. Hui Nung becomes legitimized as a sixth patriarch. And at that point, Zen or Chan in China, Zen Buddhism is off. We're off, and now we are getting ready for all kinds of patriarchs and all kinds of Zen traditions and all kinds of mountain monasteries with all kinds of practices. And what starts to happen is, is that in the tradition of Zen, you start to get these stories of these wild, crazy things that these Zen masters did. Like Bodhidharma tearing off his eyelids and planting them in the ground, or like Hui Nung tearing up sutras. These Acts of enlightenment on the part of these Chinese monks become the foundation of what is known as the koan tradition, right? The gong'an, uh, koan is a, is a Japanese word. In Chinese, it's called a gong'an. And a gong'an, there, there's a lot of uh, interpretations of what gong'ans are. Traditionally, a koan is something like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And it's supposed to be like, Uh, that doesn't work. You need that. It takes two hands to make a clap, right? So it's kind of an illogical idea. That's what nowadays most people think koans are, are the question. But actually the koan, which again in Chinese is a gong'an, which means a public case, a public situation. What a koan actually was, was the time when the master told us about the sound of one hand clapping. Not the sound of one hand clapping, it's the performance of these things. So, for example, there's a famous uh, Chinese Zen Buddhist master named Lin Chi. Lin Chi in Japanese is Rinzai. His monk, the monk's name is Rinzai, and this becomes a whole school in Japan called Rinzai Zen. Rinzai is based on this monk, this guy named Lin Chin. And Lin Chin was famous for doing all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, saying all kinds of crazy stuff, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And so... <laughs> so many funny stories, but it, you get these kind of antics where you know the, the student will come to uh, Lynchy and say, um, uh, "Well, no, okay, I'll give you the classic one. I'll give you the classic one." One day, Lin, uh, Lin, I'll keep it Chinese. One day, Lynchy comes up to all of his students. He says, "Okay, you've all been studying with me a long time, and not one of you is enlightened. Not one of you can prove to me or tell me anything enlightened at all." And then he goes and he grabs a cat. And he says, if one of you can't say one enlightened thing right now, I'm going to kill this cat. Every sight, bam, kills the cat. At that point, our hero, the cook, the cook's always the hero in Zen stories. The cook comes in and looks down and he's like, oh, like, what happened? 
And he says to Lin Chi, he's like, what happened? He's like, I asked them all to say something enlightened and none of them could say it. And he turns to the cook and the cook goes, and he takes off his shoe and puts it on his head. And Lin Chi goes, where were you a minute ago? I had to kill the cat. (laughs) So I say koans are more like jokes. Have you heard the one about the Zen master that killed the cat? I guarantee you. No Buddhist monk or Zen master ever killed a cat. Ever. But there's this great story about the Zen master that killed the cat and then the cook who put his shoe on his head as a sign of his enlightenment. So you see what I'm saying? So a part of Zen is this kind of antinomian kind of weird behavior that kind of goes against a certain grain of Buddhism. A big part of Zen Buddhism, a big part, if not the biggest part, is this notion of the lineage system. <clears throat> it goes back, or I should say that it goes back, 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 eventually to the Buddha. This is something that is, it's really relevant to a lot of things, not just Zen and not just Buddhism, but this idea of this need or this appeal to authority. This idea of like, hey, you guys want to know some Dharma? And you guys are like, yeah, who are you? And I'm like, no, no, I'll tell you. No, 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 who are you, though? Like, who, who's your teacher? I need to know who your teacher is and your teacher is because I need to know your authority. And this lineage system is still, again, still at play. It's not just a Zen thing, but there's a way in which the Zen, they make it the foundation of the school by this idea of, shh, 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 no, 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 no. Forget reading. Forget all of that. Direct mind-to-mind transmission. I want to see enlightenment. I want to feel it. I want to learn from it in that way. I don't want to read about it. I want to witness it. And the thing about this that's, again, relevant to a lot of things and not just Zen Buddhism is that what we are talking about is a Chinese-born, Chinese-speaking person, no Sanskrit, no Central Asian languages, all he knows is the language he was raised and born in and learned his Buddhism. And he's getting in front of the empire and claiming authority. Not just authority over Buddhism. This is where it becomes really relevant. Shen Hui, a Chinese-born, Chinese-speaking person, is claiming authority over a foreign religion that everybody knows is based in foreign languages and everybody knows is well over a thousand years old. What do you, a Chinese-speaking, Chinese-born person, know anything about an Indian religion? That same mentality happens even like in America. Here we are in America, and if somebody only speaks English, English-born, or American-born, English-speaking, and it's like, what do I, what does that person know about a Chinese religion or a Sanskrit-based Indian religion? Isn't that why you need to know who my teacher is and my teacher's teacher, teacher? Because I'm not speaking Sanskrit and Chinese. I, mean, I do that, but I don't, I'm not teaching in that language. What is my authority based on? That question for a lot of people throughout history has been of the utmost importance to the point where I won't even listen to you until I know this lineage you are in. And again, this happens even to this day in terms of these institutions, whether they be Theravadan or otherwise, and systems of ordination, and then lineage passing on, and then this transmission of authority.
big part of Zen. And again, even though I'm describing it as a Zen thing, rest assured it's something that then becomes part of a lot of Buddhism, if not all of Buddhism, is that no Buddhist teacher is allowed in a way to just know the Dharma. It needs to have become from, uh, and then it could even be, um, you, could, you could transpose this to, you got a, you got a PhD? You got a master's degree? Who, who, wait, you got a library? You have a library card. <laughs> and you went to the library and figured all this out? No thanks. Right? That's the mentality, right? Is that you're either a dilettante, amateur, or you have a lineage and can prove it. So that's one thing. Any questions? That's a good one. I studied with a Zen teacher for 20 years. Who never revealed her teacher, who her teacher was. And refused to. And claimed that she Occasionally, enlightened people just sort of showed up in the forest or in yeah. and, and 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 did not have to provide an explanation. Any ever hear of that? Or I, I my yes, absolutely, absolutely. There's you know there's a whole tradition in Buddhism of the um, called a Pratekya Buddha. Pratekya Buddha. Uh, this is usually, Pratekya is usually translated as solitary Buddha. The idea is, yeah, this stuff is tr the truth. Dharma means truth. Dharma is the truth. And it could hit you. You could be just looking at the stream and it could hit you. Oh my, you know, dependent origination. All of it can dawn upon somebody and become enlightened. Absolutely. From what you just said, I would wonder then the the necessity to call it Zen or anything in a way. Well, she studied with the Zen teacher. She just was never. Oh, okay, okay. So that's the necessity, which still sort of is what I'm sort of talking about, where you have a lineage. What what makes Zen Zen a lineage system is sort of what I'm saying. There's a lot of things that make Zen Zen, and a lot of debates about what makes Zen Zen. But I'll tell you one thing: it, it's not is Dhyana meditation, because even though the whole tradition is called. Dhyana, it's like Zen, again, <laughs> Zen chan means Dhyana. Ironically, Zen is some of the traditions where they meditate the least. <laughs> Ironically, in the modern world, it's not quite as true as in the more medieval world leading up to the like 1600s, 1700s. We have to understand that Buddhism had gone through such big swings over thousands of years that this, the notion of, and we've talked about this in other classes, the notion that we're living in some sort of end times and that there's no point in meditating, just pray to Buddha, that notion was dominant, not just in India, not just in Central Asia, not just in China, but everywhere, this idea of the mapo, ma, uh, mapo the, the decline of the Dharma. There's a few sutras where the Buddha says, my real Dharma is only going to last a few hundred years. And then after that, it's going to be like hit or miss because of translation and stuff. There's going to be this like thousand year period. So there's going to actually, sorry, I misspoke. He said there'll be a 500 year period where it was fine. Then a thousand year period where, and then the period where there's no hope. All you can do is pray to Buddha, pray to Amitabha Buddha, not even Shakyamuni, but Amitabha Buddha. 
And that mentality of the end times, the only hope is prayer, had become so dominant that nobody was meditating anymore. And if they were meditating, it was not for enlightenment. It was for tapas. It was for the accumulation of spiritual energy that you could transfer to the emperor or the protection of the country. And I want to talk about that um, tonight at some point, which is the role of Zen and the Zen monks in the Zen monastic institution as uh, little... uh, karmic force field generators for empires and countries. So if they were meditating, they were meditating for the explicit purpose of creating a karmic force field around an army or a country, not for my enlightenment. Okay, so that's, there's that idea. So I'm throwing out a lot of different ideas here, and please note these, these years, right, that we live in 2019, and there's a lot going on in Zen. A lot. So I'm trying to describe where all of that came from. It kind of all originates from this line in China. Um, I'll use that to say none of this, despite the mythology about Bodhidharma being the 28th Indian patriarch, there is no record of any Zenness in India at all. It's an entirely Chinese creation. And from a scholar of Chinese and all that, I can tell you that Zen is so Chinese. The patriarchness, this is so Confucian to like be revering my grandfather, my grandfather's grandfather, my grandfather, grandfather, grandfather. Like that's so, the ancestral worship is so deep in Zen Buddhism. And on that note, I'll add that in Chinese society and culture, it was kind of weird that the Buddha was asking everybody to leave their parents. That was one thing that the Chinese were like, really? <laughs> like, that went against the grain of Chinese culture to basically, like, uh, abandon your parents. So in reality, a lot of renunciation in China was only in, like, they would go live in the monastery, but then on the weekends they still go home and have, you know, hot pot with mom and dad and go back to the <laughs> monastery. So they kept that relationship. And so that ancestral filial piety thing that happens in China and Chinese culture is fully expressed in this where, yeah, I'm not revering my grandfather, but I'm revering my spiritual grandfather, my guru. And and even though guru is an Indian term, this is all guru worship as well. Uh, Hong Wen is the guru. Huynang worships him. Bodhidharma is the guru. Huayka worships him, cuts off his arm for the guy. So that degree of reverence for the teacher is also a very Zen thing, where I am not revering statues of other Buddhas. I am not reading the sutras of the historical Buddha. I'm sitting at the feet of a real Buddha. That is also the Zen, which you'll see in Tantra. You'll see in Tibetan too, where the guru is deified and there's a karmic relationship that goes on there where if I treat you like a guru, I'll coax the guru out of you. And you, and you might not even benefit from it, but you'll teach me. Like, I'll get the guru to come out of you. That is a tantric thing, but it's also a Zen thing where you revere the teacher as a Buddha. Because if this Buddha nature, Dharma, emptiness thing is true, you are the Buddha. I should be revering you as the Buddha. I shouldn't be over in India thousand years ago, some foreign dude I've never met, 
in some historical time I've never been. I should be revering the living Buddha. So this is also where Zen becomes unique and leads to a tantric mentality of this idea that the guru is the Buddha. When the guru comes in and sits down, that's the Buddha. And this is, oh, I didn't even tell you about it. It's the funnest thing. My group, my sutra study group. This sutra of Huaynang, this is a, a really old original version that I really like to use. Um, but this is a one, a classic translation that's accompanied with the Diamond Sutra because the Diamond Sutra is such a big part of the Huaynang story. Um, what I didn't share with you is this idea of the platform sutra. This is a sutra, but it's not claiming to be a translation of a Sanskrit text. It's in Chinese, but it's a sutra. And what's funny about this sutra, again, for my sutra study group, is it begins with this idea that the master Huaynang ascended the high seat at the lecture hall of the Tanfan Temple um, to expound the great Dharma. And at that time, over 10,000 monks, nuns, and lay followers sat before him. The prefect of Xiaochou, Wei Chu, some 30 officials from various departments, and some 30 Confucian scholars all begged the master to preach the Dharma of Pranyaparamita. Does that sound familiar? Right? The format of the Buddha, Huenang, was in such and such a place with such and such a people saying such and such a thing. What's so funny about the Sutra of Huenang is that they know they're riffing on the Sutra, but they're, um, what can I say? I mean, not, it's not theology. It's like it, Buddhologically, which is a term, it's spread, Buddhologically, they're right because the school of Zen is that Huenang is the Buddha. So this is a Sutra. And this idea of like, hey, we're Chinese, but let's write our own sutra. That idea is what allows Jack Kerouac to write his own sutra, the scripture of the Golden Eternity. Um, Gary Snyder writes the, the Smokey the Bear sutra, which is kind of funny, but interesting as well. And so this tradition of let's write our own sutra in the format to express the idea that our Huenang or our whoever is an enlightened Buddha. So that's interesting as well. So this becomes, you know, the sutra that's about how you don't need sutras. Which, uh, <laughs> which reminds me of I, uh, one of, you know, you, one should read the, the platform sutra. Really uh, profound sutra. Huaynang is a very enlightened person with a lot of enlightened things to say. The most, like, the, the, the Huaynang, the six patriarchs saying that kind of hit me the most that all like always comes back to me that to give you a little flavor of Hui Nung. Hui Nung is famous for this saying, and it's in the platform sutra. There is no difference between an enlightened person and an unenlightened person. It's the enlightened person that knows that. Classic Zen logic, a little like, wait, what? What did you say? Right? There's no difference, right? Because of emptiness, equality of Buddha nature, there's no difference between an enlightened person and an unenlightened person. It's an, it's an enlightened person that understands that. Is that a koan? Or is that just a it's kind of a koan because it's this weird tautology, right? In terms of logic, it's a tautology where it goes around and around and around, right? But that's part of Zen. But I think there's a way in which, at least for you know, the, the, the Dharma students in the room, that that 
that sentiment. There's no difference between them. Yeah, it's the enlightened person that understands that. There's a way in which it's like you, you, you see how it, it is wisdom. It is truly pranya. It's a pranya statement, a, wisdom, a non-dual wisdom statement that, again, is just a little huenang gem that this is, is full of them. One thing you should know, too, of interest. Two more things you should know of interest. Um, this is called the Platform Sutra for a very particular reason. It's a complex history that I'm only just going to open the door of for a moment. You should know that at this time in China, the process of people being ordained as monks, signing up, joining a monastery, male and female, that process was heavily regulated by the state, by the Tang Empire. And what that meant was is that only certain monasteries were allowed to erect an ordination platform in order to bring people into the Sangha and ordain them as fully ordained monks. The, the relevance of this or the importance of this is that in China, if you were a monk or a nun, you were exempt from paying the mandatory tax that all citizens had to pay. All citizens were conscripted, or all male citizens were conscripted into the army, meaning you had to do a stint in the army. But if you were a monk, you didn't have to do that. And there was a, there's a third benefit in Chinese culture to being a monk, that you get out of doing something. So it was a big deal if you were going to give someone these official ordination certificates that allowed them to get out of public, or that was the other one, public service. So there was mandatory public service, mandatory community service, mandatory tax, and for men, mandatory um, army participation. But if you were a monk, you didn't have to do that. You could live in the mountain monastery, meditate, receive offerings. The reality in China is actually some monks would get so many offerings that they would become really rich and live in a like, little mansion temple and stuff. Whole other story. But this process of having an official monastery with an official ordination platform sanctioned by the state in order to bring people in. And they would say, no, no, only 100 new monks this year. Only 100, right? So this was all very carefully regulated. A little side note, the monk's ordination certificate in China, in the Tang Dynasty, started to become so valuable of an item because you could get out of so much that people started selling them and they become, they become valuable. And there's a lot of people that argue that the Tang Dynasty Buddhist <laughs> Monk's Ordination Certificate was either the first kind of stock-type certificate or even the first currency, the first fiat currency, representative currency, because what started happening is, is people would be like, well, I'll give you two donkeys and an ordination certificate. I'll take just the ordination certificate. So the document became representative of a value of wealth. And some people trace it to the first example of a paper currency, if you will. So big deal. The monastery that can hand out these ordination certificates, the hundred monks that get to get out of it, all of that. The Platform Sutra of Huaynang. And actually what this dude Shen Hui was in the business of doing was some evangelical out in the woods, let's just erect our own platform. And if you want to get ordained, like screw the emperor, screw the state. This is about the Dharma. This is about the, what he called the formless precepts. 
he got all zen about it, but it was a weird, actually, like if you, again, if this is a book is all about this, by the way, but if you also do the history, it's a very interesting thing where it was trying to sidestep state authority and just ordaining people because they wanted to be monks. And he was giving out his own ordination certificate, so he was basically counterfeiting this currency. And, I mean, like, this is a whole social cultural history that is fascinating. I just wanted to, again, crack open the door to show you how complex this gets. You know, it's a lot more than just meditation and enlightenment in that way. Questions, ideas, comments, insights? The special transmission, uh, at least with the people in this chart, it appears that you choose, like, one and you're only going to give it to one, and so that's how you end up with these patriarchs. Mm -hmm. it, is that something that continued for a long time, or do you do you get to a point where people are saying, okay, well, I've got multiple people, so I can give it to all of them? What happens is, is that you get, after Shen Hui, you get a, you get, Yo, I'm the eighth patriarch. No, I'm the eighth patriarch. He gave it to me. Some third dude. No, no, he gave it to me. No, no, no. We were in the Bahamas. He gave it. To... So it gets this whole like, who's really the eighth patriarch? Huge. And basically, a lot of schisms start to happen in the Zen tradition because one guy's like, "Yo, I'm this." And actually, that's what happened was that there was other sixth patriarchs, other seventh. Pa there was other people competing with Shen Hui. There was other people competing with Hui Nung. And again, if you read Philip Young Polsky's amazing study here, he'll lay out how there were all these different lineages. And this is just the one that won out in, in time and history. So, but your question's right on that. Like, yeah, that. Do you know of any Thank you. So I did want to mention, this is an amazing book, Lives of the Nuns. This is part of, um, so... This is a great book because it highlights this, these Zen nuns. Um, the Zen, the nuns in the Zen monastic or Chan in China monastic situation, they're a big part of it. Like all of history, women are underwritten, meaning they don't appear in the histories. And so we have the, we are left with the impression that they did not participate and did not matter in that, in that history far from the truth. Same thing in China. They were a huge part of the success and prosperity of Buddhist monasteries. This happens to be just one of the few great books that highlights these nuns. There is this... Um, this is a... It's a collection of biographies of, of Zen, Chan, Buddhist nuns. And this is sort of about it. This is the original Chinese. This is sort of about it. And for part of my master's degree, what I did was is that there was a nun, a Taiwanese nun named Tsu Kai. And she was studying with me. She was part of my co cohort. I, this is at the University of Hawaii. Forget what she was studying, but I did a series of interviews with her about how she became a nun, her life, and all that. And I was struck by how her story, her relationship with her parents, this kind of uh, certain, the pressure to get married, all of that, her not wanting to get married, and so leaving, all of that story. It was right out of the 5th century China. I was blown away by the similarities, and so what I did as of my project is, is I wrote her 
a biography in Chinese in the Tong style. Um, it was a great project, fun, fun, fun project. And so through that, I learned all about the role of nuns. Again, how important they were, how big they were, and all of that. So yes, there is a big presence in it um, in China. I've mentioned this in the past that the 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 size of a female monastic group in any country rises and falls with a lot of different socioeconomic factors, meaning that in a lot of cultures, if there are too many people, meaning we have a population problem, it's very noble to be a nun. Oh, there's nothing more noble than to be a nun. If we are having, like in Japan right now, they have a very big population problem, the most disrespectful anything any woman could do in Japan is become a celibate nun. In a situation where we have a population crisis, however, that's like turning your back on our people. Now, as soon as Japan has a big boom, they'll be back to thinking it's very noble for people to, you know. But this history, again, you could write a, a dissertation on following these charts, where depending on the situation, it's either very noble to be a nun or not. Same thing happens a little bit with monks, but that's a little trickier because of this relationship between. What I mentioned that in the Tang Dynasty, the Zen Chan institution was creating this karmic force field. Like that's what they were in the business of doing. They were considered very powerful little spiritual beings with their shaved heads and, and no sexuality and all of that. So that relationship with the state of protecting the state, which was present in the mid-700s, fast forward to Japan, World War II, and the Zen monks being conscripted into the army to fly kamikaze pilot flights into Pearl Harbor because they have no ego or sense of self. Same, protect the empire. Same thing going on. So this complex relationship between, in particular, Zen Buddhism and the state, very, very complicated. All right? I find it fascinating, though, Special transmission of the Dharma without words or letters at the outset really I find really compelling. It's like oh, you kind of sidestep the trappings of language and, and institutionalization, and, and, and if you're illiterate, what happens if you, can, if you don't have access to the sutras? But then that's sort of replaced with a different kind of institutionalization, this, this sort of like lineage line, this patriarchal. Yeah. Um, and so it's like you just. <laughs> kind of shifting from one foot to the other. Right. Yeah. And, you know, talk to Martin Luther. <laughs> yeah. It's a pattern of the institution's gotten too much. Let's revolt and build our own institution. <laughs> right. Was around, around. Thank you for bringing this back. There are two things about this special transmission without reliance on words and letters. Um, there is something, you noted it, which is. In our past Dharma conversations, we've, we've touched upon this trickiness of language, the trickiness of words, the labels, all of that. And so, yeah, Zen is coming out of that awareness and being like, yo, the, maybe it, the best way is twist a flower, wink of an eye, put a shoe on my head. A gesture rather than a word or a statement or a pithy you know, saying. So the emphasis on... Not the nonverbal is there, 
But there's also this wonderful, because I, I don't want to like anybody to come across thinking, oh, Zen, it's all about this. You know, I'm trying to give you the broad spectrum of what this thing is all about. And one of the really, really cool things about Zen is this idea of that it's about like the subliminal, the subtle, um, the slightest little gestures are where the teaching's happening, not, again, whiteboards and all kinds of charts and graphs, but this much more... Um, Zen, uh, there's a wonderful uh, Zen story, so many Zen stories, but the one about the the guy, the Westerner, whoever, he chucks all the way to this mountaintop to study with this Zen master, and uh, you know it's raining, and it's like he's got to walk up this you know giant hill and all of that, and he gets in, gets, you know, puts his umbrella away, goes up to the master, and he's like, Master, you know, please teach me, and the Zen master's like, Yeah, I'll teach you, I'll teach you, but you have to answer me one question. Yeah, anything. He's like, what side of the room did you put your umbrella on? And the guy's like, I can't remember. That sounds like, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And Zen is about this sort of real deep, like, awareness, uh, always. And again, like, the subtleness. So teachers, Zen teachers tend to teach much more subliminally in that way. So I do want everybody to walk away with a certain... Zen is mystical, magical as well. It gets institutionalized and suffers from this problem. Another big problem that I want, that I cannot uh, in good conscience leave you all without having gotten this across. So what happens is is that Zen, Chan in China, Zen in Japan, similar cultures, that particular brand of Buddhism becomes at the service of the state. As I've said, buildings, karmic force fields, all of that stuff. This merger culminates in approximately the year 845. In China in the year 845, there's this massive persecution against Buddhism. Massive. I mean, it's one of the world's biggest religious persecutions that nobody knows about. Why did it happen? Briefly... It's so complicated, but to give you the nice little nugget, the emperor, the newly appointed emperor, was one of many emperors who had taken upon himself to pursue immortality via Taoist means. The Taoist (coughs) wizard priest, because this is a theocratic state in which the religion of Taoism is spiritually upholding the legitimacy of the emperor as the ruler. And this Taoist wizard dude is feeding the emperor of China these pills filled with arsenic, mercury, you name it, the whole nine, classic pill of immortality stuff at the time. And as he's taking this stuff, it's driving him mad. And the Taoist who's giving it is saying, well, the reason why it isn't working is because all of these Buddhists, it's all this foreign religion. If you get rid of all the foreigners, the immortality pill will work. And so it became this wild, vicious cycle where the crazier he got from these pills, the more he believed. And so he led this wicked uh, campaign against Buddhism. What happened as a result of that is that effectively Buddhism died off in China. It was, we were talking about a huge monastic population. We're talking hundreds of thousands of temples and monasteries 
that re get reduced down to countable numbers of monks and nuns throughout the whole empire and countable numbers of minimal temples here and there. One of the traditions that survived this massive persecution were the Zen dudes that were up in their mountain monasteries defending themselves by a Shaolin techniques or otherwise. That remained because it was so far outside the fray of the persecution that the Zen tradition kind of won. So now, 845, 846, that emperor dies because he got poisoned. The new emperor, there's a lot going on in this, but the empire started to fall apart under this emperor. I'm talking about the fall of the Tang Dynasty begins with this emperor and what happened. So then the next emperor was like, well, everything's falling apart. We've got to get some monks back. And so he actually starts to return the balance a little bit. And at that point, so mark it, 900 Zen, the Zen monks, Buddhism in general. At that point, it's almost like you might as well not, you might as well not even talk about sex at that point. It's just Buddhism in China has one role given to it. Um, we're moving into the modern era, so we don't believe in the karmic force fields as much. But the Zen monk, the Chan Zen monk, China and Japan had one role. Funerals. Period. We don't touch death. Death is cooties. This is around the world. Death is cooties. You don't want to have anything to do with it. And so in India, of course, if your lot, lot in life is to deal with the dead, sorry, you're at the bottom of the caste system because you were the most polluted. Sorry. China, Japan, the same thing. This huge problem of what to do about the dead, how to handle them and deal with them. Enroll in all these monks from India, and they're part of their practice is going to charnel grounds and meditating on corpses. They have no problems dealing with death. They don't believe in cooties. They don't believe in the being that would get the cooties. They don't believe in the problems that would arise from the being getting the cooties. All of that. And so these Buddhist monks take over the role of running funerals, of burying the dead. Were these the few remaining? Yeah, basically what happened was is that so after this persecution, it's like, well, what are we going to do about all the funerals? Who's going to do all this? And it's like, well, let those. And so the, the monks come out of the mountains back to the cities, back to the populated areas to perform funerals, not to meditate, not to be astrologers and fortune tellers, uh, not to uh, tell stories for the public and Dharma teach, not to translate sutras. One purpose, to do funerals, chant mantras for the dead. What century? Ninth century? This is the year 900 forward. So the 10th century on, Zen Buddhism is what I would call funereal Buddhism. The only thing Zen is in the business of doing is doing funerals. And so the reason why I share this with everybody is that if you go to a Zen monastery in the U.S. or Japan... It might seem very somber. It might seem like the black robes that they wear. It might seem very dark and sad. And it's because in the morning when they chant, they are chanting for the dead every morning. They're not chanting to Amitabha Buddha for enlightenment, to get to the pure land. It's funereal Buddhism. And, and people need to know that about Zen, that they are participating in funeral rites. You're not meditating. 
You're participating in a funeral every morning. And hello, if you're a Buddhist and you're all about compassion and passing on merit, that's a serious practice. But I think people should know that that's what they're involved in. Rather than going to a Zen temple and you're given your little thing to chant and you're like, wow, it's really like sad in here, but I'll chant. But at least I'm going to get enlightened. No, that's not what their, the program is. The program is not... So, say again. I am explicitly referring to the contemporary times. And what I'm telling you, though, is not known to many Zen practitioners. They think it's a style to be a little morbid. Including Zen Yeah. Now, hear me out, though. All kinds of Zen teachers in the world, all kinds of Roshis, all kinds of people, all kinds of people that know everything I know. And so there's a lot of people that are doing Zen more of the either the wacky antinomian classic Rinzai way or they're doing it their own way. They're, they're recognizing that Zen allows for interpretation. It is its nature to allow for the Hui Nungs to stand up and say, I'm enlightened, I got it. So all of that, but I, basically it's, the whole ritual process of Zen, the bells, the everything, it's a funeral. Yeah, the liturgies. Yeah. yeah, and so it's just one of those things that if you know that's what you're doing, like, oh, I'm going to do this and transfer merit. I can transfer merit to my, my deceased relatives, or transfer merit to whoever. It's a great opportunity to do that. But if you, again, if you think that, oh, I'm going to chant this liturgy and do this, and then I'm going to, I'm headed towards like, Buddhahood, they're not in the business of doing that, actually. Wow. They don't tell, like, I went to, I stayed at Green Gulch. They don't tell, I mean, we chanted a lot, and it was very morbid and very, like, bowie and belly, but they yeah. didn't mention anything about And again, because this history, <laughs> this, the history is long and complicated, and it's sort of a world in which <clears throat> scholarship has sort of known this about it, but the practitioners sort of not so much, because it's been a long time coming wow. of that process to where we got here. But again, the black robes are for a reason. The reason why Francis Xavier, the Jesuit who went to Japan and hung out with the Zen monks, was like, yo, those are nice black robes. You mind if we... Because the Franciscans are wearing brown. They're Jedi Knights. Everybody else is... They got other robes, but those black funereal robes that the Catholic priests wear with their rosaries and their baptism, they all got that from somewhere. Those practices... Now, and we can, I think we can talk about sort of the, the ritual practice uh, of, of Zen, but I, because the first thing you said, that we, without words or letters, so again, I find that still compelling, so I mean, it could be the practice of it in, 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 in even in present day, but what about this thing of, of the koan or that, that, that way where, where Zen can perhaps sort of sidestep the trappings of language and get to this, right? Sure. It, there's still something there, even outside of the sort of, um, and this is not even a defensive zone, but uh, outside of the, the, the practice of it in a daily day sort of ritualistic or, or institutionalized way, mm-hmm. right? Is there a way where Zen can exist outside of this institutionalized <laughs> way or not? It's debatable because, again, for some folks, Zen is this lineage system. That is what Zen is. And so if you're not claiming to have a lineage, you're not playing Zen. That's one. 
However, you know, Zen is in a way uh, what a lot of the beats were into. They did see this possibility. Um, a, a big part of Zen is dealing with um, samskaras, these sort of conditioned thought patterns, if you will. And an analogy that I've used in the past is, um, it's kind of a Zen analogy, but they describe the mind, you could think of the mind, as being like a, a big pile of sand. And imagining that pile of sand that above it is a spigot, a water spigot. And that spigot has a little leak. So these little beads of water develop on the spigot and periodically drop on the pile of sand. And so you can imagine that first little bead of water drops on the pile of sand and rolls down it, creating a, a slight canal, just a little indentation where it rolled down. And then another little drop falls and it rolls down this side. Another little drop falls rolls down this side. Another drop falls and it lands in that groove of the first drop and follows the path that it went down and thus makes that groove a little deeper. And the drops keep dropping and some follow this route, some follow that route, some follow that route, making those routes deeper and deeper and deeper until pretty soon those canals are so deep, the water can no longer f flow freely over the pile of sand but is only allowed to go through a certain number of these canals. That is a kind of a Buddhist, Zen Buddhist way of describing samskaras, these mental conditionings, kind of conditioned mental behaviors, where when we think the same thing about the same thing once, twice, three times, we start to develop a pattern so that when I'm confronted with that thing again, I can't just see it new. I'm always going to see it through those past experiences with it. Zen is, in that regard, about that, without reliance on words and letters, an attempt to sort of get that pile of sand to get out of that conditioned behavior. And so you have these like stories of the Zen master where the student comes to the Zen master, comes to Lin Chi and says, master, what is the, what is the Buddha nature? And Lin Chi says, ha! <laughs> and, the, and the monk goes, oh. Or, <laughs> the idea being that when the Zen master, there's the slap, he slaps the student. That's yeah. the answer. The idea is that you're waiting for the, oh, because dependent originate, you know, the, the verbalized, logical, what is enlightenment, what is the Buddha nature. But instead, or, ha, or shoe on the head, or something that doesn't fit. I don't know wh wh which canal does that go in. And that is supposed to jar the sand. And so the sudden enlightenment idea is not that we have all these grooves that we need to work on uh, eliminating, right? And sort of smoothing out, polishing the mirror day by day, smoothing it out. It's this jarring so that you get fresh samskaras, you fresh mind through a, a jog. And they describe this kind of instant enlightenment or what's called saturi, in J Japanese Zen, they talk about a saturi, where it's like, whoa, I got my samskaras wiped. Whoa, kind of a thing. And it's not enlightenment, like full-on anuttara, samyak, sambodhi enlightenment, but it is this sort of wake-up call of how conditioned one's mind has been and something that has jarred you out of that and shown you, oh, I was thinking about this all wrong. So yes, Zen is a part of that. And I would suggest that any time... A Dharma teacher takes that antinomian, right, that unorthodox approach, 
That is it. I would say that. I would say that. What's that word you said? Anti-what? Antinomian. That's a fancy word. Every now and then I'll throw in that. Yeah. No, <laughs> nomos is this is free for the law, and so antinomial is like against the law. Or tradition. Or tradition. Or, uh, Etymologically, it's right. law, but yeah, this right, idea right. of going against a tradition, or like, um, it's not quite tantra, it's not quite left-handed type reversing everything behavior, it's more wacky, zany, unexpected. So if you, if you remember my talk on Tantra regarding orthodox behavior and unorthodox behavior, right-handed, left-handed, uh, dexterous, sinisterous behavior, that idea, the idea is, is that the, the dexterous, the, the, the orthodox is sort of, you know, what everybody would follow, knowing that this is not what you follow. And so Tantra is sort of about swapping them. Zen, you know, you, you've never seen this coming. It was never part of the equation to begin with, and that's how it works. This, of course, is represented in the Buddha's twisting of the flower. This is a poem, by the way, uh, about when the Buddha slightly twisted the flower, Kashapya slightly smiled, this direct mind-to-mind transmission. That's a little gatha, a little mind poem. The mind poems of Huinang, that there is no uh, Bodhi tree, there is no mirror, all of that. It's another aspect of the koan, the kind of uh, poem, the enlightened poem. This will lead Zen into the, 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 uh, the belats, right? The, the flower arranging, calligraphy. That comes from this, that sort of... Sand garden. The sand yeah, garden, yeah. all of that stuff. It, that's where it comes from, is this sort of attempt to... Um, use other techniques. This, of course, comes to full fruition in, in Japan. And there's a book by D.T. Suzuki, that famous scholar, Buddhist monk, called uh, Zen and Japanese Culture. And in this very famous book, D.T. Suzuki just makes this blanket statement that if the Japanese do it, it's Zen. <laughs> We're Zen. Flower arrangement, yep, Zen. Taking shoes off, Zen. Anything we do is Zen. So DT Suzuki is a questionable source for understanding what Zen is. He's very particular about it being an expression of pure Japanese enlightenment. And somebody else wrote an interesting counter article in the late early 2000s called Zen and Japanese Nationalism. Yeah. <laughs> which was actually about the uh, co-opting of Zen to build a sense of national identity during World War II, all of that. So I got questions, answer. Hey, I have to stop giving you more information. <laughs> I'll take it offline. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> fair. <laughs> I was, oh, okay. I was wondering um, about of Buddhism have these canonical texts that are the basis of it. So what is the basis of Zen Buddhism? Is it literally like Shen Hui teaches it like his teacher taught him? And so it, it's contained within the lineage passed from teacher to teacher 
and there's no like so two things yeah. just quickly the irony that all scholars talk about is that for a special transmission of the Dharma without words and letters Zen Buddhism is the most prolific of all Buddhist traditions. I mean, they have written more commentaries and more texts and more words and letters than any other school of Buddhism combined. So that's a, a bit of irony. In answer to your question, though, it does become this sort of... Um, traditionally, again, it's complicated, big institution, all of that. But traditionally, the idea was is that each patriarch or each of these masters had sort of the license to do the interpretation themselves and pass it on their student and their student would process it and then present it in their own way mm -hmm. so it was the idea is you have to understand that this idea of without words and letters was originally like a, like yo how can we do this without falling into the traps of this like they were really serious about it mm -hmm. and so the idea was wow if 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 Hui Ke had written down what Bodhidharma told them to do exactly, and that's all Hui Ke told the third patriarch, that's all we're talking about. That would be passing sutras down, passing practices down. But this is a constant, not constant, but this generational revamping idea. So that's also part of Zen, for sure. Whereas other schools are about fidelity or, or you know, keeping it pure to unchanged in that way. Okay. So one little question yeah, yeah. to follow up to that. Um, then what would a Zen, like if I went to the Zen center, I said, you know, and I talked about, I don't know, the Diamond Sutra or some sutra, would they be like, what do we care? Or, no, okay, so thank you on that. Yeah. Even though Zen started as this rebellion where Hui Nung's tearing up sutras and they're like, no, we're not even going to use sutras. No, they use the Diamond Sutra. Like, the Diamond or the Vajrachetika Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, is traditionally the foundation of Zen Buddhism. And the Pranya Sutras in general that we deal with are the foundational texts of Zen. Zen is a Pranya school, but as you may have picked up on, the mind-only school is very present in it. All of these different schools I've talked about are present in it. Zen is this like this wild manifestation of Buddhism and a good um, uh, kind of metaphor that I can give you for it is imagining like imagine a Buddhist altar back in the day and originally but and I've said this before originally you know a Buddhist altar uh, Buddhists in India the Theravadan or not Theravadan the earliest Buddhist traditions had had a kind of a shirk a kind of rule against uh, uh, in, uh, creating images of the Buddha, it was like a no-no, you don't represent the Buddha. So you would only have either one of three images, a tree, and Buddhists were originally mistaken for tree worshipers. They were actually kind of worshiping the idea of the tree of enlightenment, but people that didn't know about that thought they were actually like worshiping trees. There would be the Dharma wheel, which is a representative of all the teachings, or there would be an empty throne fascinating image of early Buddhism, the reverence of an empty throne. So originally there was nothing on a Buddhist altar per se. Then you can imagine the beginning of Buddhist um, statues and you might have an altar. And again, this is a metaphor. I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I'm just painting an image. 
So then you have a statue, and then it's like, oh, well, let's get some nice, like, flowers to go with the Buddha, and then we'll get some nice this, and then we'll get a, a couple bodhisattvas. And pretty soon, this altar starts to get, like, pretty out of hand. <laughs> Zen is when they went, and sit in a way before an empty altar. For me, that's like a way of really like grokking Zen. Of a, like, well, it's definitely embodied in that practice, which by the way, a lot of Zen traditions still do to this day, which is the tradition of sitting in a meditation hall backwards, facing the wall, nose two inches from the wall. Yeah, they do that at Green Gulch. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, pe- the, pe- the people learning or whatever are down farther behind the, uh, the monks yep. that are sitting against the wall, but yeah, you face the wall. Yeah. Old tradition. Old, uh, these are things, too, that I always like to share with people so that if you go there, you're participating in a very old thing. It's not like Green Gulch was like, wouldn't it be funny if we turned around? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's a very old practice. But when you walk into the temple, there's an image of some, because there's the bell, like when you walk in, you have to bow, do the bell, yep. and do it three times. Everything's very, like, but isn't there an image? Yeah, and most Zen halls have a statue in the middle that everybody does circumambulation yeah. around, and it will either be Bodhidharma okay. a lot of times, Manjushri, if it's a Bodhisattva, and there's a few other options. Again, again, it's a wild world out there. And so there's no reason why a Zen monastery temple could not erect Avilokiteshvara and be like, yo, we're into Avilokiteshvara. We're going to do our Zen liturgy and pray. To, you know, there's no rules in Buddhism against that. So again, and I'm also trying to paint you guys with broad strokes. Lot going. And again, please don't go to any Zen people and say, Michael told us this or this or that. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> I mean, but you can call me out because here's my question yeah, about oh, sorry, Zen sorry. Center. Please. Because Zen Center is full of all different. It's, it's, and, and yet there is the aspect of it of going downstairs and you're sitting against the wall and it's traditional and they do the death rituals. They actually were pretty forthcoming, but I kind of sought it out. I, I started like. You know, going to priests and asking questions and, and had an audience with the abbot. And so I was trying wow. to, like, really get into, like, what the heck's going on here? There's all this contradictory information. Um, and, and I met someone and, and did a weekend retreat at Green Gulch with somebody who claimed to have direct transmission. And here's the thing. Like, as a Zen priest, she was very effective. As a human, she was a nightmare. And, um, you know... That's another thing I'll say. <laughs> and, and here's my question. It seems as though this special transmission concept within Zen creates more ego than it destroys. That was my experience of two years of being at Zen Center on a very regular basis. And and then just finally being like, I gotta go. Because it was, it was just very... When the ritual was happening, when the meditations were happening, I was having really amazing experiences. Mm-hmm. When I was dealing with people, though, just even walking through the halls, it was an ego fest. Mm. <laughs> that, I bet you just summed it up. <laughs> I can't speak to that. I, I, <laughs> yeah, what's that lady's problem? I'll tell you what happened. Which barrel the fuck was happening? Can you go there and ask? 
because I'm afraid of her. On that, on that, okay. <laughs> I'll go in there. I can't speak to that. And on that, you know, I mean, and some of the people, people are people getting, everywhere some of the people you go. Are phenomenal. But my experience yeah. was that there was a lot of ego going on. Within. I would say I would just comment that every institution has its shadow side. Oh. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 that is definitely manifest in San Francisco Zen Center, the whole institution. I know it pretty well. well I think Genevieve's po- sort of or, or pointing to a little bit of the hypocrisy or irony. Just a maybe. question about like you know I mean kind of like the overall maybe I'm totally wrong about this but like what's the Buddhist goal you know mm-hmm. it's it's we're kind of looking to get to a little bit of ego destruction mm-hmm. that's like getting away from it. Yeah. Again, I mean, if anything. It's so complex mm-hmm. what Zen is that even these people that are participating in it mm-hmm. that may or may not know that it's funereal, may or may not know all of these different things. Um, I don't know. Again, I can't speak to those specific people, but it, that brings something to mind that I want to point out, which is about a certain a thing, that, a commonality that you'll see in a lot of Zen teachers, a commonality. Um, so the tradition of the drunk Zen master... <laughs> is part of this antinomian behavior. Mm-hmm. Again, in Tantra, like Tibetan Buddhism, they will use intoxicants. They're flipping it. They're, yeah, Buddhism is no intoxicants. But in Tantra, we flip that, or they flip it occasionally, and use intoxicants to go through the desire and the passion and all of that. But it, that's this isn't in Tantra. This is about this kind of like... Um, um, oh, we, you know, we read the wonderful... Um, uh, the Malakirti Sutra where the monk the flowers were falling on the monk's clothes and he couldn't get them off and he was like oh I gotta get these flowers off we're not, a, we're not, allowed, wear, we're not allowed to wear garlands and he's schooled by a woman in fact about hey like actually the problem is you di- discriminating against these flowers the flowers are chilling you've, you've got the problem right so that is a little beautiful example from the Vimalakirti Sutra about what Zen tries to do in, ter- in terms of this kind of beyond good and evil mentality of not judging things one way or the other. And so this idea of purity, abstaining from alcohol, and this idea of sort of, again, not in a tantric way flipping it, but in a kind of emptiness way, not acknowledging it, not giving it, not giving purity and defilement the time of day in that way, not giving that idea credence. And so they'll drink and it's sort of like whatever. I've met a number of alcoholic monks who have problems and all of that. And that's where that gets you that, you know, if if it's, so there's that. And I guess all I'm getting to is like that Zen is like, it's complicated. And so a lot goes or any, not that anything goes, but a lot can pop up. Just like in the tantric, they're, they're, the tantric tradition, Shambhala, for example, right now is going through all this controversy, uh, sexual, sexual student-teacher, inappropriate student-teacher relationship type stuff and all of that. They're playing with uh, dangerous things because they're kind of encouraging that type of behavior. So that's a problem for tantra is the teacher-student relationship, that getting weird. Zen is a problem when this whole beyond good and evil mentality goes crazy or whatever. And there's some ways in which Theravada, these other more institutional, text-based traditions are a little more safe that way. You, you know what I mean? And you go into a Zen, yeah, it might, you might run into some egos more often, or you might run into a drunk Zen master. Or, so, 
But and the first time that I ever heard the story that you were telling when I walked in was there, and what it what it told by someone at, at Zen Center who's actually coming down to teach um, was one of the original teachers there. It was Mal, I forget Mel's last name. Um, thank you. And he told that story, and it was getting close to the point that I stopped going to Zen Center, and that was my impulse was like, oh, oh, maybe you're just supposed to hear this story about direct transmission, and if you get it, just leave. I didn't leave right then, but I, I did leave pretty soon after that. So I was like, oh. Yeah, I'm telling you, the whole funereal aspect is something that even I, it was actually a stay in a Zen Center here in America that I hadn't been in a Zen center for quite a while since basically I was a graduate student kind of learning all of this. And so years later I've processed it all and then I went and stayed in a Zen center and I was like, oh, that's why. Because I didn't realize, and again, I hadn't been in a Zen environment for so long. So after having done all this graduate research and teaching experience and all that, I go in and it's like crystal clear all of the aspects in which they are uh, performing a funeral rite, or, or they're engaged in that process of dealing with the dead and passing merit to the dead. That's their raison d'etre, their reason for being. Um, and again, the environment, the culture sometimes doesn't even know that. They think they're trying to get enlightened. Yeah. Yeah, and again, don't go saying, Michael said, you guys aren't doing real Buddhism or whatever, because that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's a very complicated history that has brought us to the modern manifestation of all of this and I'd like to help all of us understand where we're, where all this came from you know certainly not judge it as better or worse or any of that which none of you doing. I found that they had a lot of um, levels of which they were willing to disclose things so in having audiences mm, yeah, with been... the priests and talking with them on a one-on-one that's when I when they told me about the funeral stuff they were like yeah but we don't really like to talk about it I was like but Mm-hmm. So there's all these layers, and it's not, you know. It's so also keep in mind my original story. The reason why I wrote that this story, this recursion story of stories within stories within stories, and all of that, is this sort of um. Uh, I forgot what I was going to say. It happens. <laughs> questions, answers. I don't, know. I, don't know. I don't know. Questions. And going back to the like instantaneous enlightenment thing. Because that seems pretty interesting. Sure. Uh, I mean, because I mean, <laughs> instead of like shining the dust off the glass, I mean, if you just don't even have, I mean, that's great, right? But I was thinking about it, and I'm kind of thinking about like your and my experience, and like if you do have the sand thing and you have the grooves and you, you know, whatever, scream or whatever, and it kind of goes, but if there's still a sand there, the water's going to start again right and the grooves are going to form again and so is it and because you said it wasn't actually like full enlightenment because yeah. I feel like there are those moments where the grooves kind of go away but they don't it doesn't last for me personally it doesn't last very long so yeah, yeah and on that note of, of thinking of the idea of the grooves in the pile of sand and the way our minds work and then there's no sand you know emptiness like these two ideas and remember in Buddhism, the emptiness, there is no sand. This is not the ultimate truth. This is not like you just realize this and that's it. It is about the relationship between the world as it's perceived and this truth of emptiness. It's about their relationship in that way. And this is what in Buddhism is called the doctrine of two truths. It's not that this is true. It's actually they're both 
kind of simultaneously true, and, it, and the wisdom is about understanding how this conventional subjective world is coming out of this, quote, unified emptiness situation, right? And so that relationship between those two is what it is is that always on an ultimate level there is no mind there's no sand this sudden enlightenment is an ever present possibility ever present possibility it's right there all the time that's true but what's also true is that i have a totally conditioned mind that's steeped in all of this stuff and there's a big pile of sand with all these grooves in it and again those two things are simultaneously true in buddhism that's the same, the spirit was saying, kind of, um, a Buddhist saying, like, um, if you think the world is real, you are a fool. If you think the world is not real, you are even a bigger fool. Mm -hmm. What was the you think the world is what? Real. Oh, oh, oh. Beautiful. Absolutely perfect. I once sat in a meditation study group with somebody who was a Zen priest who was very much into the sudden enlightenment thing. And, um, I, I guess the thing that is hard for me to figure out with that is that to get enlightened, like we're using our noggins, but our noggins are physical, biological things that don't change instantaneously, right? Our neurologic substrate changes gradually. What you're referring to by neurological substrate is this idea of a vijnana. We talked last week. We're talking about the vijnana only school, consciousness only. This is what you're referring to, and Buddhism is referring to by the brain, the neural network, synapses, however you want to think of it. This physical conditioned brain that is. Uh, observing, processing information, being influenced by its environment, spitting out, regurgitating means, things it's learned, all of that. That's all of this versus chitta. Chitta is sometimes translated as mind versus consciousness. This is this world conditioned, made of form, mental formations, the brain, all of that. This is, I mean, you know, the Chinese have this, this idea of the xing, the heart mind. It's not the brain. It's, it's the heart mind. It's this chitta. Chitta is, as, in Sanskrit, chitta is as much here as it is here. It's more, it's chitta. And so what Buddhism is always talking about is that, yes, yes, we are these deeply conditioned beings made of form, conditioned through stimuli, all of that, but we have this aspect, and it's not our brain, it's an aspect, and I always describe it as it's our curiosities, it's our inspiration, it's like when you want, you, you want an answer to a question, it burns in you, and it's, it's that desire, not desire in that wanting, grasping way, but that, it, that kind of mind that, again, is curious, not conditioned, not wanting to watch TV or any of those things, but wanting to be enlightened, wanting to be free, wanting to, all of those things, that's chitta. And that's why in Buddhism they talk about bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is the mind, is bodhi, is enlightened mind. And that's, they say, is not, in a way, housed in this. This is sort of maybe an antenna for picking it up, kind of, if you think of that, if you want to use that metaphor. But the idea is that chitta is not 
housed in this. This is just the way in which it is experienced. Like and gross, subtle, like the, where teeth is more subtle. Very subtle. Uh, very as gross. An, an energy or as a sure. rather than an instrument or something. Exactly. Like and so the idea is in Buddhism and Vipassana in particular, the insight meditation is about analyzing the brain and realizing, oh, I was conditioned to think that. I was conditioned to want that. I was conditioned by my parents to feel this way. I was conditioned by my school teachers to think this way. Conditioning, conditioning, conditioning. And then you hear a little Dharma droplet and you're like, ooh, you're Hui Nung. What was that? The Diamond Sutra? Oh, that's Bodhicitta. The arising, they talk about in Buddhism, the quickening of Bodhicitta, that we don't kind of in a way always have it. And it quickens it, it like a... It, it develops, and then there are means to develop it more, and, there, and basically a means to eventually transcend this mind and be totally that mind. That's the program. Yes. I, find, I found it really fascinating, like, when I started my you know, Buddhist path and started to do frustrations, and then after years I um, understood that when you do frustration and you put your hands to your head, it's, it's the body, and here's the speech, huh? and here's the mind. And I ah. like, here's the mind, here's the speech, and here's the body. So oh, interesting. Some understanding, so you, you know, you mm -hmm. body, speech, and mind can take refuge. And that was for me kind mm -hmm. of the, you know, understanding where Chitta really has its seat. Yeah. It's and it's a difficult practice to disambiguate what is conditioned you know, versus what is this chitta? That again, but that's the meditative practice to sort of do that. Noe? There was a expression just last Thursday that struck me during a guided meditation with Michael Tao, where where and I'd never heard it before. Is your head in your mind, or is your mind in your head? And I'd never heard that before in my entire life, and it was. It was quite profound for me. Sounds like a very Zen <laughs> moment of Michael Taft to drop right. on. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, but it was kind of this chief, this awakening, this kind of like, <coughs> you know, the light goes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It hasn't left, which is kind of nice. It's awesome. On that note, just to add, you know, if you did my Lotus Sutra workshop and you know about upaya, skillful means, the screaming, the shouting, the slapping, that is pure skillful means. Because the idea is, is that it, what is Buddha nature? In fact, there's a funny story about the monk who basically was trying to mimic the teacher and said, like, what's, what's, what's Buddha nature? And everybody's staring at him like, and the teacher, and then the main teacher comes over and he's like, I don't get it. And he's like, what's Buddha nature? So it's an upaya thing where it's like that. It's like the highest upaya beyond words and letters, right? You're even direct mind-to-mind -mind transmission. I was thinking about, like, I remember I tried to ask you a question last week. And which I have an answer for you. Because we both ran out of words to be able to articulate. So uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Which is what I'm wondering about here. So, like, I, sometimes I feel like there's a limit to what I can conceptualize, like, with only words. And sometimes, um, and the way that, like, you have to talk about when you talk about dependent origination, I have to talk about my eyes and bowl as though they're separate things. And I can't talk about the monolith because there's no word for Michael Alter bug sweater. Like, they're separate words. And so I have to conceptualize them as, like, separate things. Mm -hmm. um, and the language is limiting in that way. 
And so I'm wondering whether that is that part of what the Zen tradition is thinking about, is that why they're doing this? I haven't heard that exactly. So I'm wondering if that's part of what they're thinking about and trying to not, in twirling a flower, am I trying, are they trying to express something that's ineffable? Or, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes, definitely. There, it's an it's a extreme recognition of the limitation of language, speech, and all of that because Buddhism recognizes this, by the way. It's not me being smart. It's Buddhism smart about <laughs> self. They recognize that the very nature of language is dualistic. The, it's a dualistic game from the get. And so we either don't play the du that dualist game and we try to arrive at that unified consciousness through these gestures but then again eventually buddhism says you know what let's just use the words anyways <clears throat> kind of a thing but yeah i mean really quickly just because last week we talked about this idea of the three natures and you were sort of asking like what's with the third nature why is it not just the zoomed out version of the second yeah yeah that's what it was and so the idea is, is that you have this uh dependently originated <laughs> nature of things Right? Everything is dependently originated and therefore empty. And then you have this conventional, well, last time I started with the conventional, which is all the, everything that we're projecting onto reality, right? All the lakshanas that we're projecting value, aesthetic value, da 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 da. And so the conventional view is total ignorance. And what's really going on is this dependently originated thing. And I introduced this tatata. If you weren't here last week, sorry for this digression, but tatata as suchness as it isness, the way to think about this is that this is the middle path between these two. So this is the expression of the madhyamaka or the middle way as it pertains to this conventional versus ultimate. So it's not quite a, the zoomed out view that you were describing. It is this sort of, it's like, this tapata is the conventional world, but through the understanding of dependent origination. Yeah. If I were just in dependent origination land, I'd just be in emptiness. There would be no conventional reality. In fact, I, the idea is I'd be a, a liberated bo bodhisattva or Buddha at that point, because I would have no uh, value judgments or anything. I would be in pure dependent origination, which means any individual thing is not. Right? So there's a way in which you're left in the total void here. This is total ignorance. This is this sort of middle path where it's the conventional world viewed through the understanding of dependent origination. Okay. This is, yeah, it's the language problem. We can keep on. Yeah, and, and language, of course, is a big problem. Folks, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta drive. I gotta go. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was such a great night. I really had. To